I don't think there's any other issue viewed in its broadest sense, which is as critical to mankind as the issue of the quality of the environment in which we live. You hear the word ecology, that's a big science, not a narrow one. It's a big concept. And it is concerned with all the ramifications of all the relationships of all living creatures to each other and their environment. It is concerned with the total ecosystem, not just how we dispose of uh, tin cans, bottles, and our garbage. It is concerned with the habitat of marine creatures, animals, birds, and man. And our goal is not just an environment of clean air and water and scenic beauty while forgetting about the worst environments in America, in the ghettos, in the Appalachians, and elsewhere. Our goal is an environment of decency, quality, and mutual respect for all human beings and all other living, living creatures. Hello, and welcome to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. Ecology is defined as, quote, the branch of biology that deals with the relations of organisms to one another and to their physical surroundings. In the opening clip, you heard former Wisconsin governor and senator Gaylord Nelson talk about his ecological goals in a speech that he gave on the eve of the first Earth Day in April of 1970. As governor, Nelson focused on improvements in the state's natural resource program, which earned him a reputation as the, quote, conservation governor, according to NelsonEarthDay.net. As we'll learn in this episode, the stage was set for environmental change with an emerging public consciousness about air and water pollution, stemming from the publication of the book Silent Spring in 1962 and the Santa Barbara, California oil spill in 1969, among many other events, and from what EarthDay.org describes as a culture of grassroots activism that was inspired by the student anti-Vietnam War movement. Ultimately, Senator Nelson and Representative Pete McCloskey of California recruited Dennis Hayes, a young activist, to lead the charge. Hayes organized campus teach-ins on April 22, 1970, a weekday falling between spring break and final exams, to maximize the greatest student participation in the country's first Earth Day. Hayes ultimately built a national staff of 85 people to promote events across the country, inspiring 20 million Americans, at the time 10% of the total population of the United States, to demonstrate, protest, and rally in the name of environmental activism. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode celebrating Earth Day. As we prepared to share all that we learned from our research with you, Craig, Zach, and I reflected on our experiences on Earth Day as students and as teachers. What did we learn? Why do we celebrate Earth Day? And what activities did we engage in? Asking these questions helped guide our research, and we are excited to share what we discovered with all of you with the hope you can incorporate it into your classrooms. Zach, as you mentioned in your introduction, Dennis Hayes was brought on board to generate awareness of this initiative. Almost 40 years ago, after the first Earth Day celebration, he was a guest on our Washington Journal morning program. He talked about some of the reasons this movement began and the legislation that came out of the growing awareness of issues affecting the country. Let's take a listen to his remarks. There was a a, a true transition in the public consciousness with regard to the environment in 1970. And things that were unthinkable in 1969 became unstoppable in in the wake of that first Earth Day with 20 million participants. In the first five years after Earth Day, we passed a Clean Air Act, a Clean Water Act, an Endangered Species Act, a Toxic Substances Control Act, a Marine Mammals Protection Act. Literally a, a wave of legislation created an environmental protection agency and began to change the way that, that America does business. What sparked this movement? Remind viewers what happened in 1969. Well, there were a number of things that began to create this vague consciousness that, that there was something going wrong with the direction of the country, that there was a disconnect between the growth of gross domestic product and, and what was giving people satisfaction. Uh, there were lots of little things. Uh, It began with uh, Rachel Carson's writing Silent Spring. Uh, It it dealt with the Santa Barbara oil spill, showing that even the most elite communities cannot escape the effects of pollution. A series of thermal air inversions that gave uh, air pollution uh, so badly in several American cities that kids could not go outside for recess. We've sort of forgotten today, but in 1969, the air in Pittsburgh, Gary, Indiana, Los Angeles, is like the air in Shenzhen, New Delhi, or Mexico City today. Uh, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, the Great Lakes were dying, the bald eagle was an endangered species. I mean, all of this stuff, each of them independent threads, what what Earth Day did was to weave that all together into the concept of environmentalism and turn it into the fabric that today has become an important part of American life. After viewing this clip in your classroom, you could ask students to research one of the acts that Dennis Hayes mentioned, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Endangered Species Act, or the EPA Toxic Substances Control Act. We'll place links to several of these acts on our website for you to access, but this Earth Day is a great opportunity for you and your students to dive into a particular issue in your own community, one that interests them and one that affects them. As your students research a topic, encourage them to talk to people who are related to their issue, people who can help them learn about it. They can explain how they and their environment are being impacted and discuss action that is being taken, offer their own solutions, and determine who they might reach out to to address it. This day is a great opportunity for them to become civically engaged in their own community. And if you are looking for a ready-to-go resource to use inside your classroom with your students, we have a deliberation lesson entitled, What Should the U.S. Policy Be Towards the Use of Fossil Fuels?, where your students can view videos of diverse perspectives and they can look through a variety of lenses to learn about the topic, different options, and engage in debate and arrive at their own conclusions. The lesson includes analysis and reflection regarding specific elements related to the debate, 
including carbon emissions, alternative energy sources, and the rise in the global temperature. But moving back to Earth Day, while we've explored the background of the day, let's now dive into the origin and significance of the history of Earth Day. Reflecting back on what Earth Day co-founder Dennis Hayes mentioned in the previous clip, we should remember the work of Rachel Carson and the impact that her work had on the country. RachelCarson.org describes her as a writer, scientist, and ecologist. Her career spanned decades in writing and editing articles and pamphlets on conservation and natural resources, and she published several books, among which were The Sea Around Us, The Edge of the Sea, and perhaps the most notable, Silent Spring. The website goes on to say, quote, Embedded within all of Carson's writing was the view that human beings were but one part of nature, distinguished primarily by their power to alter it, in some cases irreversibly. You may be wondering what compelled her to write Silent Spring. Author Paul Dreesen was a guest on one of C-SPAN's book TV programs, and in this clip he talked about the impact of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and what drove her to write it. It was pretty serious impact. It touched on a lot of themes that had been on people's minds. It created alarms. It presented in a, a poetic way and an alarming way what might be happening out there. And it was, it was almost presented as it was happening, even though much of it was conjectural and speculation. It was presented as this is happening. We are using so many chemicals, so many insecticides that we are going to kill off our songbirds. We are going to be left with a silent spring in which there are no songbirds. We are going to kill off the bald eagle with our insecticides. And it got people scared. She did a marvelous job of raising people's awareness that a lot of what we were doing was poisoning the environment, uh, the air, the water, the land. Uh, she did it in a way that got people emotionalized, made them want to get involved, to take steps to, to solve the problem, to end the despoliation of our environment. Rachel Carson sold over 500,000 copies of Silent Spring in more than 20 countries. And not only did it grow awareness for life and the environment and health and pollution among the public, elected officials and government agencies were taking notes of the issues presented in the book as well. Let's listen to this archival clip of President John F. Kennedy at a news conference, as well as Tom Putnam, the former director at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum, and they're commenting on Rachel Carson and her work. In a press conference on August 29, 1962, President Kennedy was asked the following question. There appears to be growing concern among scientists as to the possibility of dangerous long-range side effects from the widespread use of DDT and other pesticides. Have you considered asking the Department of Agriculture or the Public Health Service to take a closer look at this? Yes, I, 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 and I know that they uh, already are. I think particularly, of course, uh, since Ms. Carson's book, but uh, they are examining the matter. Miss Carson's book. Just as President Lincoln once described Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, as the little lady who started the Civil War, President Kennedy might have identified Rachel Carson as the woman who launched the modern environmental movement. As he stated in his press conference, in response to Silent Spring, President Kennedy asked members of his administration to examine Miss Carson's case against synthetic pesticides. In the spring of 1963, his science advisory committee released its findings, noting that, quote, until the publication of Silent Spring, people were generally unaware of the toxicity of pesticides. 
The report substantiated Ms. Carson's conclusions concerning the detrimental effects of pesticide spraying and recommended, quote, the orderly reductions of persistent pesticide use. Building on the growing public traction toward environmental activism, the U.S. government began to increasingly get involved in regulation and oversight, notably with the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. The EPA was created in 1970 by the Nixon administration, just about a year after the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, caught fire for what would be the final time. Being born and raised in Northeast Ohio, this part of American history was always present through my childhood. And I instantly think of the comedy movie starring Charlie Sheen entitled Major League, which opens to the 1972 Randy Newman song Burn On. The song includes the lyrics, and you'll have to uh, uh, forgive me for my butchering of these lyrics, but Cause the Cuyahoga River goes smoking through my dreams. And when I came to C-SPAN for the teacher fellowship just a few summers ago, an experience that I would highly recommend to all of you listening, the first resource that I created was about the burning of the river. The bell ringer I made featured a short clip of an archival film from our real, that's R-E-E-L, America collection, entitled The Environmental Protection Agency History, 1970 to 1985. Let's listen to a portion of this program that you could use in your classroom with your students. Governments at all levels responded with programs aimed at controlling pollution. But by 1970, it had become obvious that further progress would require a strong national effort. As a result, on December 2nd, 1970, President Richard Nixon consolidated 15 environmental programs from across the federal government to form the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Not only did the new EPA inherit responsibilities from its parent programs, but it soon had a raft of new ones. The passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970 meant that EPA's management had to simultaneously organize dozens of different staffs and laboratories to develop the national air quality standards required by the Act, while at the same time showing the American people that something was being done to stop air pollution. EPA went to court. Factories were shut down. The message got through gross pollution would no longer be a part of business as usual in the United States. You can use this clip to help set the stage to introduce some of the predecessor agencies that were combined into the EPA so your students can get background information and select one that they would like to research for future or further independent study. Your students could also create a pamphlet with facts that they learned along with accompanying images. We'll post this clip along with all the other resources for you on our classroom website. Prior to establishing the EPA, steps were being taken to address the issue of air quality. Congress had passed the Clean Air Act in 1963, the first federal legislation concerning the control of air pollution. Several years later, President Johnson signed the Air Quality Act of 1967. In a portion of his remarks that day, he stated, quote, dirty water and black snow pour from the dismal air. He goes on to say that he's not describing a major city in the U.S., such as Boston or New York, but that excerpt was from a piece of literature that is several hundred years old, titled Dante's Inferno. President Johnson compared it to what was the present day in 1967. 
To provide context for the act and its effect, Jeff Holmstead, former assistant administrator of the EPA, and Robin Juni with George Washington University Law School were guests on our program, and they discussed the Air Quality Act of 1967. Let's listen to a portion of a clip from a bell ringer we have on this topic that you can use with your students. So we really risk our own damnation every day by destroying the air that gives us life. I think we do. We have done it with our science, our industry, our progress. Above all, we have really done it with our own carelessness, our own continued indifference, and our own repeated negligence. Contaminated air began in this country as a big city problem, but in just a few years, the great pile of pollution has spread throughout the nation. Today, its threat hangs everywhere, and it is spreading. Today, we are pouring at least 130 million tons of poison into the air each year. That is two-thirds of a ton for every man, woman, child that lives in American America. Robin Juni, what do you think about that statement? Did it has it bear has it buried itself out? Uh, I, I think Lyndon Johnson was visionary in some ways. He was the first president to articulate uh, an environmental program that didn't just focus on a traditional conservation, the kind of conservation that Teddy Roosevelt might have endorsed. Um, he focused also on restoration, um, innovation. How are we going to actually improve these resources rather than just preserve resources that have uh, that, that are still pristine? So, as uh, Mr. Homestead, has it bear- what about his statement? And to you, has that bared itself out? His statement. Well, I, I, I think in many ways it has. Uh, he, he, of course, was a product of his times uh, back in the late 60s is when I think the public at large began to be especially concerned about air pollution. It had long been a problem in Southern California, mm-hmm. but uh, it was an increasing problem in other parts of the country, and I think he responded to that kind of public pressure. Um, uh, so the, I think clearly um, the, the Clean Air Act uh, that, that had kind of its initial beginnings in the in the Johnson administration has been a very important part of, of, uh, of protecting public health and the environment. Has the Clean Air Act that we initially saw under President Johnson the same Clean Air Act today? No. Um, the, the 67 Act, which is referred to as the Air Quality Act, um, it, it introduced a few concepts that, that continue to be in place. Uh, the idea that there would be specific areas of the country where there would be uh, the need to have a, a coordinated program, and that really comes from 67. After viewing this clip, you can engage in class discussion and have your students deliberate the question, what role should the federal government play in conservation? We actually have a lesson that focuses on this topic with regard to land preservation. It looks at conservation efforts and the U.S. national parks and national monuments, the impact on people who live in particular regions in the United States, and the species that live there. The lesson leads with a video clip that talks about a three-day wilderness trip to Yosemite that President Teddy Roosevelt, who enjoyed the outdoors and hunting, took with John Muir, who is a naturalist and is referred to as the father of our national park system. It's a great way to get the conversation started. As mentioned in the beginning of this episode, Pam, Zach, and I have learned a lot about the people who have historically been influential on protecting all areas of our environment, from the air, seas, and land, to drinking water, contaminants, and many others. From grassroots movements to laws and policies enacted by the legislative and executive branches of government, our approach to how we sustainably interact with the environment has continued to evolve over the decades. As we near the end of this episode, let's take a look at the role of the Environmental Protection Agency which enforces regulations that are passed by Congress. And in this clip, we hear from Democratic Senator Tom Carper of Delaware talk about the EPA and its role. 
Leading the Environmental Protection Agency is hard work. That agency created by President Richard Nixon and a bipartisan Congress 46 years ago is tasked with implementing our nation's most important clean air, clean water, and safe chemical laws. The EPA is required to use sound science to protect both our environment and our public health. By and large, the EPA has done this successfully for decades while our economy has continued to grow. Many in this room today may not remember a time before the EPA, a time when states had to work individually to protect citizens in the community in which they lived, a time before the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act were signed into law, a time when businesses operating throughout the U.S. were faced with a myriad of conflicting state and local laws affecting our health and our environment. The choking smog and soot the half century ago seem unfathomable now. Rivers on fire and deadly toxic plumes sound like something from another world, impossible in our United States of America. Today we have the luxury of largely forgetting these frightening circumstances thanks to the efforts of the Environmental Protection Agency, its employees, in partnership with state and local agencies and with companies across America. In fact, the EPA and its many partners throughout this country have been so successful that it's easy for some of us to forget just why this agency is so critical. As you prepare for Earth Day this year, we hope you'll be able to incorporate some of the resources we've shared into your classroom activities so students gain an understanding of how programs and policies have evolved over time. Students gain an understanding of their relationship with the environment, how our interactions with it impact all aspects of our lives, and how they can affect change for the future. As a matter of fact, last month we announced the winners of C-SPAN's 2022 Student Chem Competition, in which students explored a policy or a program that impacts their lives, and many students address the issue of the environment in their documentaries. In fact, 10% of all of the entries were focused on the environment and pollution. Some of our top winners were Nathan Kuzmarski from Cleveland, Ohio, won second prize, and he did his documentary on the Clean Water Act and the fire on the Cuyahoga River. Shannon Germain from Ann Arbor, Michigan, won second prize as well, and she did her video. It was titled Code Red on the Clean Air Act. And we had first prize winners from the Maryland area who did their documentary titled Something in the Water about water quality and pollution. So all of these students chose something that was important to them and showed how it impacts their lives. And if you're interested in viewing these films, you can find them on our website, studentcam.org, and we'll also link to that on our podcast page. Finally, we reached out to Dr. Matthew Arouk, the Director of Global Education with the Earth Day organization. That's at earthday.org. And uh, we asked him uh, to comment about more about the day, the organization's mission, as well as how people of all ages can become involved in Earth Day. So let's listen to what he had to say. At the Earth Day organization, our mission is to diversify, educate, and mobilize the world's largest environmental movement. We count upon more than 50,000 partners in over 192 countries to drive positive action for our planet. This year, the Earth Day theme is invest in our planet. We're calling on everyone, individuals, communities, governments, businesses, nonprofit organizations, everyone to consider how they can invest their time, energy, and resources to preserve and protect humans, species, and ecosystems. At Earth Day, education is central to our mission. We believe that learners all over the world should receive fully integrated, accessible climate and environmental literacy programming. These programs should focus on developing the knowledge and skills for students to participate in civic action and political processes. Learners should cultivate a mindset for innovation and entrepreneurship to foresee and address the climate solutions of tomorrow. Moreover, learners should be equipped with the social and technical skills for the green economies 
and jobs to come. These skills include intercultural communication, collaboration, creativity, and critical thinking. Finally, schools, universities, libraries, nature centers, and all education spaces have a critical responsibility to advocate and act towards social and environmental justice, ensuring that the transition to a green society recognizes past injustice and promotes opportunities for all people everywhere. Earth Day's education team has created and curated a number of lessons, activities, toolkits, and advocacy packets that can be used across grade levels and settings. Topics in these, in these materials range from organizing a teach-in, to understanding or measuring air quality in your community, species protection, bee pollination, and a number of others. Basically, there are opportunities for learning or participation at every level of engagement for anyone everywhere. To visit our resource library, visit our website, www.earthday.org education resource library. As American novelist Wendell Berry said, quote, the earth is what we all have in common. We'd like to thank you once again for tuning into the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast, and we encourage you to spread the word to your colleagues and friends. No matter how you and your school communities recognize and celebrate Earth Day, we hope that this episode and the related instructional resources that we shared will serve as productive complements to your other plans and efforts. As a reminder, you can view all of the video resources that we shared today on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. And if you would like to connect with our team anytime, please email us at educate at cspan.org. That's it for this week. Join us for our next episode as we talk about C-SPAN's Cram for the Exam program. We'll introduce one of our new guest hosts for the program and talk about how to prepare your students for the AP U.S. government exam. See you next time.